If you would remain standing for the reading of God's word, I'm going to be in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 5. We have some ushers. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise their hand. They can drop one off to you. And if you don't have a Bible at home or if you know someone that needs a Bible, take it with you today. That's our gift to you. We'll be in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 5. And if you have one of those Bibles, it's page 919. Read along with me. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Would you pray with me? God, we are excited and thankful to be able to gather together. And now as Pastor Mike comes up to preach your word, we ask that you would bless our time in your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear of your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, you can have a seat. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Mike Lee, uh, and I am so excited to be the pastor that gets to preach today for the first combined service of Mission Valley Church and Northern Hills Community Church. Yes. Yes. If you are new here today and we have never met, I would sure love to do that. It's my desire to meet everybody today, and there's a couple of ways that we can do that. Uh, the first is this. After service, I'm going to be milling around out in the kind of the courtyard. I'd love to shake your hands, fist pump, hug, whatever you're into uh, out there. Another way that we can meet is you'll fill out one of those Connect cards. Jordan talked to about us uh, in the beginning, uh, but he'll remind us to get at the end. And then the third way is this. You are, uh, you are welcome to reach out to me. I want you to know that I am accessible to you, and so I give out my phone number every single Sunday. Here it is, 602-763-3331. We'll remind you of it at the end of the service, but feel free to send me a text, uh, reach out, uh, anything like that. So I just want to take a second and say that this is good. This is really, really good. There has been so much work that has gone into uh, making this morning happen. So many people have come and laid down preferences so that we could join together and make much of Jesus. And it has been good. It has been a work to see God just work in the lives of people, to work in the details of the different things that are going on. And so it is good to gather this morning. And we got a sermon for you, but I want to just take a minute. And before we do anything else, I just want to thank God again. So pray with me. Lord God, we are so thankful for this morning. We're thankful that you have brought us together into this place to worship you. Lord, we are thankful for the people that have been in this place, that founded this place, that started this place. We are thankful for people that gave sacrificially so that this place could be here. Lord, help us to steward it well this morning as we make much of you. Lord God, if there is anybody in this room today that has yet to believe in you, Lord God, we ask you to do what you can only do, what only you can do. Lord, we ask you to save them. 
Lord, we ask that this entire morning be glorifying to you, Lord, that this morning be for our good and for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. So you have joined us today for the third week in a series that we're calling Practical Christianity. What we're really doing is just walking through this letter called Ephesians. Paul wrote a letter to this church at Ephesus, and we're just walking through this. And so at this point in the letter, we have seen that Paul has already told us that God has power and God has purpose for everything. And everything that he created, God has power and he has purpose. And Paul has told us that God is reconciling individuals to himself, taking those that were far from him and bringing them close to him. He is also reconciling groups of people. The Jews and the Gentiles have been gathered up. And where are they gathering? They are gathering in the church. They are gathering amongst the body of believers. Those that believe in Jesus and have been changed by Jesus are gathering together to worship him. And now he has turned his attention towards what we're calling practical Christianity. These last couple of chapters almost read like a how-to manual for how do we follow Jesus. What does it look like to practically follow Jesus? How does this work as we're walking around in this broken world waiting for that glorious day when Jesus calls us home or brings his kingdom here? Uh, this morning I met with a, a Bible study and they asked some, some things that are going on and I said, I would be happy. I, I got this sermon. I'm ready to preach it. But I would be very happy if Jesus would come right now. Now. I'd be happy for him to come right now. That's what I want. That is what our prayer is when we pray, God, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But right now we are in this place where we are learning about what it is to follow Jesus. And so as we think about this idea, as we think about this topic of following Jesus, this practical Christianity, I want to ask you a question. Just think about this as you sit there. Just think about this for a, for a second. Who do you imitate? Who do you imitate? Maybe you, you would say it like this. Who do you model your life after? Who is it that you're watching and taking cues from and deciding, I'm going to model my life after that? When I was in second grade, my mom and dad got a divorce, and my mom moved my brother and I with her from Fremont, Ohio to Tucson, Arizona. And on the first day that we were in our new apartment, mom was telling us what the week was going to look like, that the following week, this is what it's going to look like. She said, I'm going to be working a lot of hours. And so she said, Mike, you have new responsibilities. I'm in second grade. She says, you have new responsibilities, and here they are. After school, I need you to get on your bike and go to daycare and pick your brother up. I was to pick my brother up, and I was to bring him home. And when I got him home, I was to give him a bath, make him dinner, and put him to bed. She said that I had these new responsibilities because I was the man of the house. In second grade, I was referred to by my mother as the man of the house. And I remember even in second grade feeling the weight of that. There's a, a weight to that. I am the man of this house, and I'm going to have to figure out what that means. I felt that. I didn't know all that it meant to be the man of the house, but here's what I knew. I didn't want to let my mother down, and I certainly didn't want to let my brother down. And so I tried to figure out, well, what does this mean to be the man of the house? I can remember feeling very disadvantaged and very ill-prepared for this new duty, this new responsibility that I had. I didn't know how to do this. And the man that was supposed to teach me how to be a man lived 2,000 miles away in Ohio. And so I was trying to figure out, well, how am I going to do this? What, what does this mean to be the man of the house? And so I started studying other men. I started just watching how other men did things in their life. The first guy that I remember really keying in on was our next door neighbor. He lived next to us in the apartment complex. His name was Chris. 
Chris and his wife were graduate students at U of A. And from time to time, Chris and his wife would invite my brother and I over to the house and, and we would hang out with them in the apartment. Uh, sometimes they would make us dinner. Sometimes we would get to go with them on camping trips. And the thing that I noticed about Chris was that he was strong but gentle. I noticed that Chris was a man who was very, very strong, but also very gentle. He would take us on these camping trips. He would take us on these kayaking trips. And when we would go with him, I would watch as he would lift the things up. His wife never had to carry the big, heavy things. He would do that. But he was also very, very gentle. He was so gentle and so loving with his wife. And he was gentle and he was loving with my brother and I. And so as a second grader, my impression of what it is to be a man is that a man is gentle and strong. My fourth grade teacher was a man named Mr. Hallen. He was a really cool teacher. He wore jeans every day and an iron shirt with tie, and he wore a motorcycle. And when you're in fourth grade and a man shows up to your classroom every day after he has ridden his motorcycle with his leather jacket, you know that that guy is cool. And so I looked at Mr. Hallen and decided I want to be like that. He had long, curly, wavy hair, and that hasn't worked out for me at all. Nor am I allowed to have a motorcycle, but I'd like one, right? None of that has worked out for me. But I watched Mr. Hallen, and I watched the way that he cared for us. He would go out at recess, and he would play soccer with us. Some of the other teachers would stand off on the sidelines, but Mr. Hallen would get in there, and he would play soccer with us. And then when we would come inside, he would read to us, and he was loud, and he was energetic, and he made fourth grade fun for a, a young man. And so I realized as a fourth grader that a man is loud and excited and has fun and loves to read. My high school football coach was Burton Tingle. He's one of the best men I've ever known. He loved his family and he loved his players like we were his own kids. He disciplined us and he loved us. He encouraged us. And he helped us all to believe that every one of us was capable of so much more than we believed we were capable on our own. And from my freshman year all the way up to my senior year in high school, I believed that a man loves his family and those he chooses to make his family and that a man will work hard to make those around him better. These are the things that I learned about men because my dad was not around and I wanted to not just be the man of the house by default, but do a good job of being a man of the house. I studied these men. When I was 18, I became a Christian and I realized very quickly that the best traits that I had seen in all of these men, the very, very best thing that I had seen in all of these men were simply shadows of my father in heaven. What I realized is the best thing that any of these guys brought, and the best thing that I would ever be capable of bringing as a man myself were simply glimpses of how my father in heaven did it. I remember feeling that though I didn't have much access to my earthly father, I now had unlimited access, unbelievable access to my heavenly father. And here's what I want you to know today. If you have forget everything else I say today, please remember this, Christian you are a dearly loved child of God, so imitate him. Christian, you believe this in your heart that you are a dearly loved child of God and it is him that you should imitate. Ephesians 5.1 says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And I want us to get both pieces of this text. I want us to get both halves of this text. Please get both parts with me. You are a loved child of God. You did not earn that. You do not deserve that. You could have done nothing to ever, ever get it. But if you are a Christian, God loved you. God 
chose you, God saved you, and now you are his child. The truest thing about any Christian is that you are now, in fact, a child of God, an heir to the one true king, a co-heir with Jesus. That is who you are. That is your identity. And because that is who you are, you can imitate your Father in heaven. Be imitators of God. Literally live the way he would have you live. Live the way your Father would have you live. Now it's clear here, and we want to clarify this again lest we get confused. Paul is not saying if you can somehow live like this, if you can somehow figure this out and live like this, then God will choose you, love you, save you, and make you his son or daughter. What Paul is saying is God does love you, God has chosen you, God has saved you, and because of that, you can live like this. And so in the same way that last week's text gave us practical ways to live more like God and less like the world, today's text will do the same. We'll look at these verses today and pull out five directives from the text. The first is this, Christian, love sacrificially. If you're wondering what does it look like to follow God, what does it look like to walk closely with Jesus, to look more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world, it looks a lot like Christian love sacrificially. Ephesians 5, 2 says this, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's not altogether surprising that Paul is encouraging us to love. Jesus himself had much to say about this. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and likewise love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that people will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love. Jesus talked much about love, and so if you are a Christian, I feel confident that you know that you are encouraged and even commanded to love. And yet sometimes I think that we forget what love is. Even though we know that we're commanded to love, we've heard our Savior tell us, go out and love. I think sometimes we get a little confused as we're walking around in this broken world and we start to look at the way that the world calls love. The world loves all kinds of things that is not something we're supposed to love. We look at the way the world loves and we think that love is, is something that's romantic. We think that it's some kind of an affection. We think it's what we see on TV or in the movies. Maybe we even go a little bit farther and we start to think that it has something to do with these five love languages. Things like physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, gifts, quality time. And while all of these things are ways of expressing love, Paul is reminding us that love, Christ-like love, is sacrifice. It's sacrifice. That's what Jesus does. The text says walk in love as Christ did when he sacrificed himself for us. My good friend Brian Bowman says this, love is sacrifice, nothing less, and maybe nothing more. And maybe nothing more than sacrifice. Jesus says greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friend to sacrifice. Paul is telling the church at Ephesus as well as the church gathered here today in this room to love sacrificially to love sacrificially. So what does this look like? I mean, let's get in the living room. What does it really look like? It looks like laying down your preferences for others. It looks like going the extra step for others around you. In a church like this, it looks like thinking not only about those that are gathered here this morning, but those that are not yet here. 
you all know that there are people walking around in this neighborhood that do not know Jesus yet. And so we will find a way to love them sacrificially, laying down our preferences for them. In a marriage, it looks like loving your spouse even when it's hard. Y'all can't even imagine this, but sometimes it's hard to love me. I know, you, I know you can't probably fathom that as I'm standing up here right now, such a fantastic specimen with no long curly hair, but sometimes my wife must make the sacrifice to love me in spite of me. It's sacrificial. With children, it is like loving them even when they're being monsters. Sometimes these kids are monsters. They're monsters. If they had the power to kill us, they would do it. They would. They're so little, they can't. We got the upper hand on them. Bring it on, little guy. But if they had it, they would. And we love them sacrificially. And of course, without Jesus, it would be so hard to love sacrificially. If you didn't have Jesus, I don't know how you would do it. You would struggle to give away love because you wouldn't have a desire to to do it. You'd have this desire to protect yourself. You wouldn't want to give something away all the time because you might be afraid that you'd run out of it. But with Jesus, who gives you an endless supply of love, of sacrificial love, you can love others in the same way. Church, I want you to know that because you are a child of God, you can love sacrificially. The second idea is this. Christian, avoid sinful actions. Christian, we are to avoid sinful actions. We know this and we don't like to talk about it, but Paul's going to, so, we, so will we. This is what it says in Ephesians 5.3. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Paul jumps right in to talking about sinful actions. He tells us to love sacrificially, and then he jumps right on us about sin. Thanks a lot, Paul. I mean, but that's where we're at today, so let's jump in. He targets sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness, and he says it shouldn't even be named among the saints. Like it should be so far away from those that believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that it's not even named among them. Among those who are Christians, those who believed in Jesus, it should be not named. But here's the thing. I think far too many Christians are far too comfortable with some degree of sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness. I think we've gotten too comfortable with it. It's so prevalent in our world. It's so much all around us that we think, hey, as long as we're not doing as much as those people over there, it's okay. But that is not what the text is telling us today. The text is saying have nothing to do with it. Let us not be around it. I mean, most Christians know that they're not supposed to have sex outside of marriage. They may not always practice that, but they know it. Few Christians are shocked when a pastor like me reminds them that God designed marriage, sex for marriage marriage and nowhere else. But Paul is reminding us today that there is more to avoiding sexual sin than that. He's saying there shouldn't even be a hint of it. Of course, there shouldn't be that, but there shouldn't even be a hint, the things that lead up to that. Of course, it's not surprising that Paul's taking a strong stance on this because Jesus did too. Jesus said this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus takes it a whole new level. He says, I don't even want you looking at people lustfully. This means Christians should not be viewing pornography. This means Christians should not be watching shows that depict simulated sex. This means that Christians should not be looking at other image bearers of God in a sexually lustful way. And it's not just regards to sex that Paul is speaking. It is all impurity. 
It's all of it. Paul is saying that no actions that are immoral or impure should even be associated with Christians. It shouldn't happen. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. That is not for Christians. When there are people out there that are marketing things, that are marketing people, are sitting in a room somewhere trying to figure out how to advertise, and they're coming up with sexual images and immoral images, you should know that that is not for you if you are a believer in Christ. They're targeting someone else. It is not you, and you shouldn't participate. Paul is saying no actions that are immoral should even be associated. And here's the thing. Paul's not saying that Christians should only avoid impure or immoral behaviors according to the world standard. Paul is saying that Christians should not be associated with it according to God's standards. Church, hear this. As Christians, as Christians, all of our life, all of our behaviors, all of our beliefs should sit under the authority of God and his holy word. I think we would do well to just walk around like this, to just walk around like this and say, whatever this says, that's where my life is going to sit. I'm not going to step outside of this because when I get outside of this, I get to pick and choose the moralities that I'm going to follow. I'm just going to sit under this. If I wonder what I think about something, I'm going to open God's word and see what he has to say about it. This means that we should do the things God says we should do, and likewise, we should not do the things he says not to do. And I get that it's hard. I walk around in the broken world, too. I get that it's hard. We're walking around every day in an immoral and impure world. This place is broken, and there is impurity and immorality all around us. And without Jesus, it would be impossible to avoid it, but with Jesus, you can Christian, I want you to remember that you have Holy Spirit power in you. You have the love of Christ to guide you. You have the grace of Jesus to sustain you when you do sin and ask for forgiveness and turn away. As Christians, we should take an active approach to avoiding sinful action. Because you are a child of God, you can avoid sinful actions. But there's more. Paul's going to stay honest this morning. Are you feeling this? I preached it to myself first, so I know how you feel. Paul's going to stay honest. It's not just about actions. It's also about our words. Paul goes after our words too. So Christian, avoid sinful words. Ephesians 5, 4 says, says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. This one stings a little bit, doesn't it? I'm going to read it again. He says, let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place. It stings. And we're reading this during election season. My word. My word. Paul says filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking should be out of place for those who believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It should just be out of place. And it's no surprise that Paul is taking such a strong stance on this because Jesus did too. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus puts saying, you fool, in the same category as murder. He says there's no distinction there. That's what it is. That is sin. 
Whether you literally kill somebody or angrily call somebody a fool, Jesus says it's the same thing. And of course, we must not really believe Jesus or Paul. We must really not believe him. I mean, you and I must not believe him at all. I'm going to just say that again. We must really not believe Jesus or Paul. And here is the evidence why we must not believe it. None of us would stand around while someone got murdered. Nobody would do that. We wouldn't just stand here and watch somebody get beat to death in front of us. We would, we would jump in and we would try to stop it. And if we failed, we would, we would kneel down next to that body and we would, we would pray and we would cry and we would weep. We would, we would do anything we could to stop a murder. We wouldn't let it happen in front of us. My goodness, we're Christians. We wouldn't let that go down. But how many of us stand around while there is crude, foolish, hurtful talk? How many times do we get pulled into that and we start to become active participants in that crude, hurting, foolish talk? Christian, recognize that your words have unbelievable power to build people up and also to tear people down. And those crude, harsh, foolish words should not be participated in by Christians. Both Jesus and Paul would say that that's not how God's children behave. I was talking to... uh, Karen this week, uh, Karen Abbott, she's, she's my assistant at, uh, at Mission Valley, and she was, she was talking to me about her daughter Madeline, and she, she said something to her daughter. She, she just said, you know, her daughter hit somebody, and Karen said, Abbott's don't hit. And I thought that's fantastic parenting, to just remind her, this is who you are, and this is what we do. And I think Paul is saying to us, if we can just take the text and look at it, Paul is saying, Christians don't talk like that. In the same way that abbots don't hit, Christians don't hurt with our words like that. And I know that this type of speech is common in this broken world, but it shouldn't be common among those whose citizenship is in heaven, whose Father is God Almighty. People like that shouldn't speak like that. Because you are a child of God, you can avoid sinful words. Now, of course, none of us are God, so we will sin which brings us to our fourth point. Here's what I want you to know before we even get to it. It's not, it's not maybe you'll sin, it is you will sin. We are sinners and sinners gonna sin, sin, sin. That's what sinners do. Most of us won't make it out of the parking lot today before we sin. So this is what we need to recognize. Christian, sin has consequences, so expose it to the light. As Christians, we need to understand that sin has consequences, and because of that, we will expose it to the light. This is what it says, Ephesians 5, 5 through 14, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Sin has consequences. This passage says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This passage says that anyone who is immoral, impure, covetous, and idolater has no citizenship in heaven. It goes on to say this, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't be partners with people who are walking around in this kind of sin. Stay away from it. Avoid it. Take a long way around it. Be far from it. Jesus told us to love others, but also recognize that friendship with the world is enmity with God. We are to avoid this kind of sin. Church, here's the thing I want you to know. Sin always leads to death. 
It always, always, always leads to death. When sin happens, you can be sure that death will follow. The Bible says that when desire gives birth to sin, it will lead to death. Here's the thing. It's not that sin may lead to death. It is that sin will lead to death. It is inevitable. In the same way that a little boy will grow up to be a man and not grow up to be an elephant, sin will not grow into something good. Here's the thing, you can know this, God can use your sinful ways and do all kinds of amazing things through sinful people, but sin will always lead to death. It will lead to the death of friendships, it'll lead to the death of relationships, it'll lead to the death of something, it always happens. And as a pastor, I end up getting a front row seat to this in the lives of people I love and care about. I see the hurt in people's eyes that are living with the deaths their sin has caused. It will always lead to death every single time. What an amazing privilege it is this morning to have Pastor Dale here. I didn't know he was coming and I just met him. This man has, has preached God's word and then led people for, for so many years. And I know that if we were to just talk to him, if you could just go sit down and talk to a pastor that has seen a lot of things and say, what, what do you see happen when sin occurs? I'm sure he would tell us about grace, but I'm sure he would also tell us about the death that it has brought, the havoc that it brings into households, into families, into personal relationships with people. Sin always leads to death. So Paul tells us what to do with it. In Ephesians 5, 11 through 14, he says this, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything ex is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul says, expose that sin to the light. If you will repent and confess that sin and expose it to the light, it will not do any more damage. Church, here's what I want us to know. As Christians, we should be so afraid to sin because we know that it will lead to death. But having sinned, we should know that we can empty sin of all of its power. We can literally kill that sin in our lives before it kills us or others when we expose it to the light. When we repent and ask for forgiveness, when we say, God, I have sinned against you, against you and you alone, I have sinned, and I don't want that anymore. I'm asking you to change my heart so I stay away from this stuff. You can repent to your spouse. You can go to your spouse and say, sweetheart, I am sorry. I love you. I've made a huge mistake. I'm sorry, and I'm going to ask you to forgive me. You can go to friends and say, I have sinned against you. I have been offensive and I have hurt you, and I am sorry for that. I repent, and I want to turn away. And when you will expose your sin to the light, it cannot do any more damage. The devil is walking around all the time trying to convince Christians to leave that sin hidden. Because if he leave that sin hidden and you don't expose it to the light, you can allow yourself to continue to walk in it where it will continue to kill you. He loves that. And as Christians, as children of God, we can say, no, here, God, here is my sin. Take it. Here is my sin. Help me to turn away from it. As a child of God, you can stop lying about or trying to cover up your sin. You can know that it's bad and expose it to the light where the sin can no longer hurt you. Because you are a child of God, you can expose sin to the light. So if we are to stop these things, stop these sinful action, stop these sinful words, stop this trying to hide our sin. What is it that we should do? Well, Christian, walk in wisdom.
What we're supposed to do is walk in wisdom. This is what the text says, Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. Walk not as unwise but wise. Proverbs 4, 7 says the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. So where do you get wisdom from? Well, if worldly wisdom is what you seek, you can get that pretty much anywhere. If you want worldly wisdom, you'll find a ready supply of it on the news, on social media, entertainers and athletes, social media influencers, politicians, probably not politicians. You'll find a ready supply of worldly wisdom everywhere you turn. You can get it in the grocery store supermarket at the aisle of the checkout. But if godly wisdom is what you seek, if you want to walk in the ways of your heavenly father, if you want to emulate him, if you want to live like him, you'll have to seek him. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If godly wisdom is what you seek, you'll have to turn to God for that. You'll have to open his word and store it up in your heart. Christian, are you spending as much time in the Word as you are with every other media outlet that is available to you? Christian, are you spending as much time in the Word as you are listening to people on TV? Christian, are you spending enough time in the Word or as much time in the Word as you are on social media scrolling through random people's thoughts and feelings about every manner of thing under the sun? Christian, we have God's Word. He's left it for us, and we are to consult it. Christian, we can open his word and store it in our heart. We can sing praises to him and let those words fill us up. We can gather with the saints in God's church where you will be equipped for the work of ministry. Christian, recognize that there is much broken wisdom to be found in a broken world, but you don't need it. It's not for you. You are a child of God And because you are a child of God, you can walk in godly wisdom. So as children of God, we can love sacrificially. We can avoid sinful actions. We can avoid sinful words. We can recognize that sin leads to death and therefore expose it to sin. We can walk in wisdom. These are things that God's children can do. So if you are a Christian and you've not been doing these things, repent and believe anew. Do what we always do when we mess up as God's kids. We repent and we come home. We repent. We say, God, we've messed this up. I've messed this up. I didn't do it right this week. I didn't do it right today. I didn't do that conversation right. God, help me to do it more like you. Walk in wisdom. If you are a Christian, you can repent and believe. Simply pray and say, God, I've not been following you closely in that sin, so please forgive me and continue to shake me into your image. But what if you're not a Christian? What if you're not a Christian? What if you came to this place today because somebody invited you? 
What if you're watching online? You were just scrolling through Facebook and you just decided to stop and you're watching online. What if you are here today we're watching or listening to this sermon and you're not a Christian? Well, I sure do want you to become one today. And I have no power to do that. I have no power to do that. I have no power to make anybody that is not a Christian a Christian. I, I can't do it. I'll tell you this. If I could, I would. I know what it is like to walk in this broken world without Jesus. And I know what it is like to walk in this broken world with Jesus. And if I had any power to change anybody's heart, I believe, believe me, I would do it. But I don't. Only God can do that. Only God can give you the faith to believe. Only God can take your heart and change it and make it new. But as a Christian, God has commanded me to share the good news, the gospel. He's commanded me to share the good news, to tell you what I believed, what God gave me the faith to believe. So here it is. God made the world and it was perfect. It was beautiful and it worked exactly like it was supposed to. It was perfect and it was beautiful. And God walked with man and man walked with God. And they were his people and he was their God. Adam and Eve had two and a half chapters in Scripture to live in this perfect and beautiful world. And then man sinned and broke it. Adam and Eve started that sin and the rest of us have just carried on the family tradition. Sinning and sinning and sinning again. And because of that sin, this world is broken. You can look around and see the brokenness of this world all over the place. I was talking with Donna Cook yesterday about a homeless ministry that's happening. I can't imagine this, that there are senior adults living downtown in Phoenix, Arizona, one of the richest communities in the world, and they're homeless. And they don't have enough to eat, and they don't have anywhere to sleep. And that is evidence of brokenness. This world is broken. And it's sin that causes it. And the worst part of the brokenness of this world, the worst part of sin is that it separates us from a perfect God. God is so good and so perfect that he can't be around sinners. And so the truth is that it is our sin that separates us. But God had so much compassion for us that he wouldn't leave us in that separated state. And so God sent Jesus Christ, his one and only son, down here on a rescue mission. And while Jesus was here, he lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death that you and I deserved, and he defeated that death so that anyone who would believe in him could spend eternity in community with him. That is the gospel. And if you can believe believe that this morning. If you can believe that, you can know that God has changed your heart because you simply couldn't believe this otherwise. You just couldn't believe it. You couldn't believe that God would love you that much. But if he's changed your heart, you can. So I ask you this morning, whether you are a Christian or not, can you believe? Can you believe that your father loves you like that? Can you live like him this week? Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for your word that instructs and encourages and convicts. Lord, there are times this week, there are times this week, Lord, that, that we have not lived well like you. God, there are times this week that I have not lived the way that you would have wanted me to live that I didn't do a good job of representing your name. So we repent of that, Lord. I repent of that. 
Lord, help us to remember that your grace is sufficient and that we could never out your love for us. And God, if there's anybody in this room today or listening to this sermon that has never believed in you, I ask you to do what only you can do. I ask you to give them the faith to believe. Lord, save them. It's in your name that we pray, amen.